Now we're going to have our Bible reading just now. We're going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you've got one of the Pew Bibles, then you'll find that on page 315. Two Samuel chapter twelve, page three hundred and fifteen. So David has sinned with Bathsheba. He has uh, has Uriah murdered, and it looks as if everything has settled down, and he's able to put that behind him. But then we pick up the story in two Samuel chapter twelve. This is God's word. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had brought that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You, you did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him when the child was dead, for they thought, well, the child was still living. We spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked? Yes, they replied, he is dead. 
Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, why are you acting in this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to his son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this word about David. Bless it to our hearts together today. Well, if you have a Bible close to you, let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel 12. We come, uh, that's uh, page 315 of the Pew Bibles. We come uh, this morning to what I suppose is really one of the, the most important moments in David's life and probably one of the hardest, his encounter with Nathan the prophet. So if you weren't here last week, we looked last time at uh, the very tragic story of David and Bathsheba in chapter 11. We saw that that chapter expands at least nine months. It's a chapter in which we don't see David refer to God at all. Uh, remember, he has this is him uh, coming up and sort of being at the peak of his uh, influence and so on. He um, has a settled kingdom, God's blessing upon him in great ways. And now we find that for this period, he is running his life himself. He's living without reference to God. And of course, the results, as we might expect, are not good. He ends up an adulterer, a liar, and a murderer. And by the end of the chapter, it looks as if he's gotten away with it. Bathsheba is his wife. The child has been born. There doesn't seem to be much chat about it all around the palace. It looks as if David can put it behind him, except for the fact that at the very end of the chapter, God reappears, as it were. Chapter 11, verse 27, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. God's eyes had been on David all the way through these months, even though David was not looking to the Lord. And now God acts. And you see how the chapter opens, chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Chapter 11, you remember it was David who was doing all the sending. He was trying to be in control. He was sending this and sending that person there. And now God is sending. David's not in control at all. We're going to look just briefly at that sort of what happens, certainly in the first part of the, the chapter, and then make a few uh, general points about how all of this works as far as our own lives are concerned. So Nathan goes to David with a story. It's a sort of a parable, but, but David thinks it is a judicial case that, that, that he is... Uh, there as the king in the land to give his ruling on a particularly tricky case of law. He, he thinks it's a, a, a real story. Tells a, a story of two men, one with great herds and flocks and the other with only a, a pet lamb. This pet lamb lived in the house. It was treated as one of the family. And then when a visitor comes to the rich man, rather than take one of his own flock to feed him, he takes the poor man's pet lamb. 
Now, David doesn't see it at the time, clearly, but there are all sorts of echoes to the previous chapter. The lamb is, is female. It's a ewe lamb, you notice. It lies in his arms as, as Bathsheba lay in David's arms. The Hebrew word for lamb apparently is bath, which appears as the root of Bathsheba's name. And you notice that the, the rich man took the lamb, and back in chapter 11, David took Bathsheba. So there are all these little echoes of of the story. And and David is incensed as he hears it. Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man. Of course, the man was himself. He burns with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Now, the correct sentence for such a crime by the laws of the day, was, was not the death sentence. It was that four times restitution. But David is so moved by what happens, he says he deserves to die. And of course, he is really acting as the Supreme Court at this point. And then Nathan says those unforgettable words in verse five, you are the man. Must have taken incredible courage. It's not really our point today, but uh, it must have taken incredible courage for Nathan to preach this sermon, as it were. Uh, he, he has no way of knowing uh, how David will react. He is the king, he has the, the power of life and death. And yet, courageously, Nathan just says, You're the man. And as I was putting this together, I thought, Oh, for a, a generation of preachers to rise up who are filled with this courage. Uh, Don't just pray for for God to fill our college with students for the ministry. Pray for him to fill it with these sorts of students, with this sorts of determination to proclaim the word of God no matter what the consequences might be. Well, well, we're going to pick up the rest of the story in a moment, but, but let's make a few observations. First of all, something about how our, our sinning hearts can be really, really foolish. The folly of the sinning heart. I can't remember what I put it on the, what's the next uh, slide there? Maybe it's, yeah, foolish hearts. There we are, foolish hearts. So, so what do you think that, that David was thinking all of these months? It, 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 it's shocking, isn't it, to realize how long this went on? And all the time through all of this, David was doing all the things that he had to do as king. In other words, he was going to, he was going to church. He was leading the people in praise. He was in the front row at the sacrifices. He was doing all those things that he'd done before. And it's really sobering, isn't it, to realize that we're just people. David is this man after God's own heart. So he's a sort of archetypal believer in the Old Testament. How sobering it is to realize that we are people who are capable of going through the motions, looking wholly on the outside when inside we're running from God. And sometimes we imagine that the best thing that we can do with, with our sin, with our, our running from God, is we can ignore it, that, that that's the right thing to do with it, that we, we sort of put it into a little, a little trunk in the, in the loft of our minds, you know? You, you, you sort of just put it away and you think, I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to look at that. Because we think that if it, if it, if it sits there unopened, it will just rust away. But that's not how sin works. It's certainly not how unforgiven sin works. It's not something that we can lock away and think that it won't affect us. 
when I was growing up in, in Kilkeel in the Mourns, one of the things that uh, was a bit of a, a, a local talking point at the time, especially because my, my dad was involved in renovating houses and so on, was the understanding that emerged about radon gas. Some of you might know about radon gas. It, it's, it's a gas that seeps out of the ground, particularly where there are granite areas, and it's uh, radioactive, uh, low-level radioactive. And, and it's heavier than air. And so one of the places that it tended to congregate was under the floors of houses. It seeped out of the ground and, and sat there under the floors of houses. And <clears throat> legislation came in to, meant that, to mean that all houses had to have ventilated subfloors so that this gas could get away. But, but there it was, you see. It was gathering under the floor of some people's houses. And over the years, the, the thought was it was making people sick. Unforgiven sin is like that. It just, it it seeps into our lives. We might think it's out of sight and out of mind, but it's it's poisoning us. Ryan read Psalm 51, written probably just in the immediate aftermath, an expression of David's confession at this time. Many people think that Psalm 32 is written a little after this, reflecting on what it means to be forgiven. This is what it says. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. You see, so here's David's experience. It seems through these nine months or a year, at one level he said, well, I can leave all of that behind me now. But at another level, he knew that he was just going through the motions spiritually. He was bearing in his very body the results of unforgiven sin in his life. I heard somebody say it's an interesting, terrible thing to do, an interesting exercise to compare a picture of Theresa May now to three years ago when she became prime minister. People are saying, you can see the physical effects of the stress of this job, no wonder. But can we see even the physical effects of unforgiven sin within our lives? David knew that he was... Going through the motions spiritually, Psalm 51, we read, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant a willing spirit to sustain me. So he's no joy in his life. David, as a child of God, had been marked with great joy in the midst of difficult circumstances often, but he'd lost that. And so you see, here's how we can talk about the the folly of the sinful heart. Because in this situation, your heart will tell you all sorts of things. it'll tell you time will make it better. If I can just get through this little period, do you know, I'll feel better as, as, as the distance increases from that thing that I have done. And yet a year later, David's unforgiven sin is just as current to God as it was on day one. God's outside of time. There isn't a change with the passing of years as far as sin is concerned with God. 
you, you, but your heart will tell you time will make a difference. Your heart will tell you th- that, that you're able to explain away your lack of joy. I'm just tired. I'm, I'm, I'm out of sorts. I've got a lot on. But you know that the problem is a spiritual problem. And, and, and like David, you, you'll find that as, as you're in this situation, the, the sin of others increases in your head and yours diminishes. As you're trying to rationalize your own sin, the sins of others increase. Isn't it interesting how, how angry David is about someone who kills a lamb? He, he, he sort of bursts out in anger about this. We have a great way of doing that with the sins of others, don't we? You know, other people are speeding. We're just a bit pushed for time. Other people are really abrasive with their words, but we're just clearing our chest and speaking our mind. But, but you see how this happens here? He, he knows the penalty for crime described in Nathan's parable is a fourfold restitution, and yet he pronounces the death penalty. He, he has done something that truly deserves death, but he excuses his own sin and he condemns the lesser sin of another. And when you're in that situation, carrying on seems much more attractive than coming clean. That is the foolishness of our hearts. The cost of coming clean, the, the, the cost of facing up to it, of opening the boxes at where it all seems too high. And you might even tell yourself that, that, oh, you know, God wouldn't want me to bring this up. Like something that happens awkwardly between friends, we'll just pretend it didn't happen. I remember reading years ago passages that really impacted me. It was from Robert Murray McShane, the great minister in in Dundee in the 19th century. And he wrote in his journals this. He said, I feel when I have sinned an immediate reluctance to go to Christ. I am ashamed to go. I feel as if it would do no good to go. As if it were making Christ a minister of sin to go straight from the swine trough to the best robe and a thousand other excuses. But I am persuaded that they are all lies direct from hell. John argues the opposite way. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He says, I am sure there is neither peace nor safety from deeper sin, but in going directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's way of peace and holiness. It is folly to the world and to the beclouded heart, but it is the way. In a gathering of this size, I'm sure it would be true if it was a gathering of 20 of us, there may well be some of us who are carrying some burden, some story, some sin, which we have tried to just bury and ignore. And it's just eating away at us. And can we say that unconfessed sin does not go away with time or with diversion? or with rationalization. It goes forward, it goes away with confession. There's where freedom is. And and that's why David says in Psalm 32, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgive the guilt of my sin. He's full of praise. How great this is, he says. 
the folly of the beclouded heart, the foolishness of the heart that's marked by sin. And the second thing is that we need to think about here is the kindness of the challenging word. The kindness of the challenging word. Because God chooses to speak to David. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't disturb him in his dreams or particularly trouble his conscience. He speaks to him. God's word, it appears, is the normal means by which he works. When he makes the world, for example, he speaks. When Jesus raises Lazarus, he speaks. His word is the agent of change. And here he speaks to David. And I imagine if if Nathan had checked in with David before he went, David might have declined the offer. You know, hi David, it's Nathan here. I was just going to pop around and have a chat with you about your sin. Are you free? And David would have put the phone down. Wouldn't have welcomed the thought of this encounter. He would have run a mile. And yet this was the word, you see, that brought life. It was the word that brought forgiveness. And there's something about our hearts whenever we get meshed up with sin that runs from the very thing that would bring us healing. Remember Tim Keller telling the the story of him walking along the street and and hearing the crying of an animal, the mewing of a, a little kitten it was. It was coming from a drain and down this drain... There was a a kitten on a small ledge just a few uh, inches above a fast-flowing storm drain. And and he got the grating open and and he reached down to grab this little kitten. But this kitten thought that, that it was terrified, of course, and it thought that that Tim was there to to harm it. And so it was scratching and biting and so on. And and yet he was determined to rescue it and, and he managed to drag it out to safety, but his hands were all cut to pieces. And and he said, you know, we're like that. God approaches us in our sin and we think that he's coming to disturb us and harm us when actually he's coming to rescue us. Maybe some of you feel like this just now. You feel as, oh, I just wish I didn't have to think about what's in that little locked box. But God is coming to rescue you. Well, it was God who was coming to rescue and restore David. And what a disaster it would have been if God had not spoken to him, if he'd left him alone. Sometimes we want God to leave us alone, but it is a mercy that he doesn't. There's all the difference in the world, isn't there, between the the knife in the hand of a mugger and the knife in the hand of the surgeon. And this is the knife in the hand of the surgeon. God cuts to heal. So, So when we're in this situation, we, we must not remove ourselves from the influence of the Word of God. It's, it's part of what we do, isn't it? We, we find ourselves in a place where we're in sin, and, and so what we do is we, we try to silence God's speaking voice in our lives. We don't pick up our Bibles to read them. We think, if I pick that up, I'm going to feel guilty. We don't come to church as often as we did because we fear that we'd be made to feel uncomfortable. There's maybe even people that we avoid because just even being in their presence, we think that they're going to remind us of our sin or maybe they're going to ask us a question. The the word you see that seems so hard to us is a word that heals. 
And it's the word that leads to the rejoicing of David. You forgave the guilt of my sin. Just to underline how welcome David found this word from the Lord. It is seen in the years to come. We find that David has four, has further sons with Bathsheba. One of them, Solomon. We read that in the passage. But you know what he calls one of the later ones? He calls him Nathan. If he were to look back in the future and think, oh, you know that pompous prophet who stormed in here and brought me that rebuke, what a cheek. Do you think he'd have named his kid after him? But if he thought, that man brought me words of life, what will I name this child? I know. Every time I look at him, I'll remember the life-giving word of God. The kindness of a challenging word. God is out to speak, to heal. And then the last thing, just in a, in a word, is, is grace and consequences. There's so much that we could say here. There's, there's really a a lot that we need to explore. We don't have time to, but this is where we sort of pick up the story again. Nathan sets David's sin before him. How does David react? Well, we see it in verse 13. There's no justification. There's no excuses. There's no putting it off. He doesn't say, well, thanks, Nathan. I'll take what you've said on board and consider it. No, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. This is what it means to repent. It means to say to God, God, I did this. Not I guess I could have done better in the circumstances. He's saying, I did this. It's on me. And amazingly, as David says this, God deals with it. You see, it says, the Lord has taken away your sin. So what's happening here? David says, God, I did this. It's on me. And God says, no, it's on me, David. It's incredible. And look again at the speed of Nathan's reaction and its completeness. It's, it's not that God will think about it. No, he just, he forgives. It's outrageous, isn't it? Here, here's a word for some of us, I'm sure. Some of us are here today and we're wondering, how would God treat me if I came to him? I have this burden. I have this guilt. How, how, would he, how would he react? Well, here we see it, don't we? His forgiveness is swift and full. And so David says in Psalm 32, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgive the guilt of my sin. There's grace. There's great grace in the forgiveness of God to David. But there's also consequences, and these are particularly emphasized in David's story, and and lots of these might raise questions for us. Nathan brings to David a devastating word about the consequences of his sin. He he tells him that the sword will never depart from his house. That's indeed what we see. As we move forward in the life of David, we will see that his family story is beset with violence. There's intrigue and rebellion. His own son rises up against him. Four of his sons die. You remember David said in the story, fourfold restitution 
is required, four of his sons die. David would face this terrible judgment. Not only that, there's a word here about his wives being given to someone close to him. This too happens. One of his sons would lie with his concubines on the very roof from which he had gazed at Bathsheba. You see, some of the old divines said that, that to, to sin is like throwing a stone into a pond. We, we, we never know where the ripples will cease, how far they will travel. And that's what we see here. Murder and, and lust, violence and lust, marks David's family line from here on. And, and who brought that in? Well, David did in many ways. And also... The child that Bathsheba had born would die. Now, lots of questions about why this should be. But part of the answer in this case would seem to be that here we are left in no doubt that the forgiveness of David is linked to the death of another, to the death of his son. David pronounced himself worthy of death in his reaction to Nathan's story, but we find that another dies. Why? Because in the big story of the Scriptures, all forgiveness is linked to the death of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. Though our sin calls for us to die, he dies willingly in our place. So you see, grace and consequences. So often these, these things are, are, are set alongside each other in the scriptures. We need to pay attention to, to both of them. Sometimes we pick up the wrong side of, of the presentation. And so let me just make that clear. You know, for, for some of us, here today, our hearts are heavy. We're, we're, we're burdened by our sin. And, and, and we need to hear today, we need to think carefully about the grace that's on offer to David and therefore to us. Because this story says to us, look, look, turn to the Lord. Bring, bring your burden to him. Labor under it no longer. There is forgiveness. He is swift and full to forgive. I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord has taken away your sin. Wouldn't you like to go out of here today knowing that? But maybe some of us need to hear the other side of this consequences, thinking about the possible consequences of our sin. We've been maybe thinking that we are an island. What we do affects nobody. It's just between me and me. But not only is it between you and God, it's between you and wherever the ripples of your actions lead to in ways that we could never predict. And so what we need is that heart that trembles at the power and the impact of sin. Grace and consequences. Let's take a moment in quietness as we think about what God is saying to us today.
What is the thing that, that God has impressed upon your heart as you've encountered the story of David and Nathan? Story of David and God. Lord, we're in no doubt as we look at this story of the, the power and the impact of sin, of its consequences. This is no cheap grace, easy believism. Give us, Lord, hearts that tremble at the power and the destruction and the spread of sin. But, but give us, Lord, to hearts that are equally sure of the desire of God to forgive, of your swiftness to forgive, of, of your fullness, and of the gracious truth that you sent Nathan to David even as you have sent your word to us today. Word to heal. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.